The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. No, 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 no. We okay, love fine, him. Fine, fine. What happened to our shocking lack we of are, We are live. No, I can't get rid of him. He, I don't, he's somehow, I, I would have removed him already. We are live. It is five o'clock on Tuesday, April 14th. Boris Johnson is back in action, at least so I think. Um, uh, the curve may be at the top. Uh, new admissions to hospitals seem to be ebbing. Uh, we don't get to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we just actually, Kate and I just had a lot of fun with, <laughs> uh, with a Zoom bomber who is uh, uh, howling into uh, the frustrating void right now of our Q&A where his stream of swastikas <laughs> and uh, and and, yeah, uh, you missed epithets. the stream of swastikas, Jillian, that were pointed the wrong direction. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> you know, and he's uh, he's dear to my heart. I want uh, someday we need to have him as a guest. But in lieu of fun and anonymous attendee swastika guy, we have Jillian York, and we will have. Uh, assuming she doesn't pull a uh, Noah Feldman on us, <laughs> we will have a Sarah Roberts. Uh, uh, Kate, why don't you introduce our guests? Yes, I would love to. Um, Jillian York is, um, for anyone who knows con content moderation, like the goddess, the ethereal, like black magic witch goddess of content moderation um, at EFF. I think that's the best possible introduction you maybe ever gotten. Uh, <laughs> I hope. Um, yes. But like, yeah, I mean, it's like all the things. She's working on a book right now about content moderation and her experience working with the platforms over the years um, in pursuit of free speech. Um, if the internet could be Jillian's way, uh, pornography would be allowed on Facebook and uh, all of the swastikas would maybe come down. Is that true? I mean, that's a good balance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that is. Uh, so I think that that's a. Um, oh look, anonymous indeed figured out how to switch his swastikas, so he has now corrected them virtually. Oh. Anyways, welcome to the show, Jillian. Thanks for joining us from Berlin. It is really yeah, lovely to have you. you. Thank you. I'm oh, Sarah's here now. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and I picked out my background also in in it to to honor today's attendees, uh, you and Sarah. I thought this would be fun. Also, just so people know, really kind of cool for this show, I think, is that this is the first time we've had two guests, one in the European time zone in Berlin and one so it's 11 p.m. your time, and Sarah, where it's, uh, I do believe it is 2 p.m. Uh, her so time. We have just... We just raptured Sarah into the conversation. And she's like in the Northern Lights. Where's your cocktail, Sarah? It's in, what are you having? You're muted, hold on. So this is, a, uh, this is an old fashioned glass from a supper club in Wisconsin, but it's filled with uh, makers and Coke and bitters and lime and another twist of lime. It's so good to see you, friend. 
It's so Hi. nice to see you. Hi. Hi. Like drink. Melting into the north. Maybe she's the black magic witch goddess of content moderation based on this. Like I was drinking Corona before and it seemed inappropriate. Yes. <laughs> You're so basic, Sarah. I should probably switch to whiskey. Yeah, you should switch to whiskey. I will uh, after this. Yeah. This is a Scotch show normally, but I'm trying to slow my roll. Um, uh, I'm not funny. Um, okay. The, that's what the anonymous attendee Zoom bomber just said. Um, how do we know who's here? Uh, you it's just, don't. It's, we don't. It's just the four of us uh, and we're streaming live. To what could go wrong on the internet? Could, well, so, no, no, we, we, we protect our people well. Like we have, we are currently being Zoom bombed by swastika guy. And uh, this is and not you, our worst Zoom bombing. At and all. No, well, actually, this is one of our best. I, I love this guy. <laughs> I, 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 I think he's 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 persistent. He's, he's argumentative. Like, he's like one note. I like that. Yeah, you know, he's really like going all in. On, I know, but uh, he's very upset. We're calling him Swastika Guy now instead of instead of anonymous yeah. attendee. <laughs> yeah, well, he's like he's got he's got like I'm I'm basically we'll see what we call him, him I, after a I, little I, while. I, I think as online Nazis go, he's one of my faves. Um, um. So can I give uh, an introduction for Sarah? Yes, please. Sarah uh, is a professor at UCLA um, Information Studies, and she is the author. Um, actually, Jillian, you have to tell us what the name of your book is in a second before I forget. But. Um, uh, Sarah recently is the author of Behind the Screen, which is a story that I think came, it was, it's a, your book was, um, came out of your dissertation, correct? Yep. Which yes, was a, dissertation plus. Yes. A nine-year study of content moderation and laborers at content moderation complexes. Uh, the people who, as she likes to tell it, I would love for you to tell as we do this today, your story of cross driving and seeing the billboard that like kind of like dinged oh. off in your head for the first time that content moderation was not automated many, many years ago. Um, but anyways, Sarah joins us from LA with her beautiful cocktail. And it is so lovely to have you both with us. We are the golden girls today. Ben is, awesome. which one are you? Me, I'm uh, Dorothy. Are you Dorothy? Yeah, who are you? Are we all Dorothys? What's, who's her? Who's Dorothy? Aren't we all Dorothy? I mean, we're yeah. either Dorothy. Yeah, like or, I, or, I actually, I mean, I could do, go with Rose. I'm from Wisconsin. It's adjacent. It's fine. Kind of a seems right. Airhead. I was kind of like, I'm really funny, and she was always the funny one. What's her name again? I mean, Blanche is the loose woman. I I could go with that. You know what? We're all all know, golden I'm the girls. Old one. I'm this. We, one. we contain like, all golden Sophia. girls. Yeah, that's yes. that's me. I've got That's a really, right. really good story about um, B. Arthur, the actress who played Dorothy uh, and Facebook. So we could like tease that and I'll tell it later. Okay, that sounds This good. is the best thing I've ever done and maybe the most ill-advised thing I've ever done with my <laughs> at the same time. Thanks well, for having me. This, uh, is the, this is the brainchild of Ben. This is all Ben's awesome. genius. About like 20 days ago, Ben like tweeted that he wanted to do a show and we've been doing it every day at five o'clock. And it has so been, awesome. I have to say, even through some pretty dark days, this has been a bright spot and surprisingly so. Yeah, and, and, and we've 
as you see, we made new friends, like with the Zoom bomber and, um, and you know, we- He just wants we, to be loved. He does. And he's I mean, like, he's very upset right now because like, we're ignoring ba- him. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say, you know, bad attention is like attention, right? So right. we see you, we feel you, it's cool. Just we take it down. You know, this, here is a, a big internet hug for you. Mm-hmm. Yes. We are sending yeah. you lots of love, <laughs> anonymous attendee. It gets better. It gets better. It so does. Dan Savage says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so to everybody who is uncivilized in our uh, uh, participant feed, you know, if you raise your hand, you're giving yourself away as a Zoom bomber because we don't take raised hands here. But if you want to leave a question and be raptured into the show to ask your question, y'all know what to do for those of you who are real people. And for those of you who aren't real people, put it where the moon don't shine. Um, We had some fun with with swastika guy, um, but we're actually moving on to the substantive part now. So this is the part where you guys get bored and leave, okay? Let's get started. all right. Uh, let's start with with Kate's provocative uh, uh, entry point, which is the idea that Facebook should allow porn, but not allow swastika guy. Uh, justify that, Jillian. Well, so to be honest, I, I that was a little bit of a. I like to be fair. That was an oversimplification, but I still want to hear Jillian talk about this. So, uh, no, definitely an oversimplification. I mean, so. The port on Facebook comment, I, I have to kind of caveat that and say that Facebook does not have to be a place for porn by any means, um, but rather that I think that a lot of the rules around nudity and sexuality that platforms, especially Facebook, put into place are just ridiculous. Um, and that porn might be easy to define in some ways. And I would say, you know, fine, kick that off. But um, overall, you know, I just, I think that going after sexual content and going after symbols, um, not necessarily gonna, yeah, not not helping. So what do you mean going after, like what is it not helping, um, presumably helping a lot of parents, right? Keep their kids away from things they don't want want them to see or they're not ready for them to see. It's presumably keeping and and what do you mean by symbols? Sorry, let me let, let me put the symbol thing aside for a second. So in terms of the sexual content, and again, I mean, I think that we can say like graphic video porn is one thing, and there's a lot of other things. Um, you know, everything from boudoir photos to um, pole dancing. I mean, I'm just trying to think of things that I've seen come down under these rules over the years. That seems overbroad. Uh, Breasts. Yes, breasts. Indeed. Uh, cheers. <laughs> um, and even actually, my absolute favorite example, and I never resist a chance to talk about it. Uh, Twitter's continued hiding of the word vagina behind the offensive replies uh, interstitial. So anyway, all of that. I, you know, I mean, I agree. Of course, it it helps parents parent, and that's fair. But I think that there are different ways that we can do that, including um, putting things behind. Um, barriers of various kinds. Um, but 
I think that it's damaging in the sense that a lot of the, the content that I'm thinking about here, um, including the, the story I'm going to tell later about the Golden Girls, is has an educational value, has a cultural value. Um, and I think that what we've seen over the years is all of these platforms kind of coming together with around the same rules so that these things are erased. Yeah, I mean, and to that point, I'm kind of interested uh, to back up to get to the question I was going to ask Sarah. Sarah, can you tell us the story about how you came to study content moderation in the first place before we, sure. and I, we can kind of, I want to, I do want to dig into kind of more of what Jillian's talked about, but like, I would love to Sarah, well, tell just, us, I love the story that's in your book that you've talked about in like talks before, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'll contextualize it a little bit and then try to segue back to what Jillian was getting at so we can kind of come back around. Um, <clears throat> so I've been at this work now for about 10 years. And uh, just by way of introduction, uh, I came to academia's at best a second career. I think it's probably... Um, a self-aggrandizing to refer to my previous life as a career. I, I worked in, in uh, kind of low-waged, uh, low-status IT. Um, you know, we were promised uh, flying cars, right? And we didn't get flying cars. I just had like hella student loans and no money. Uh, and I was like, that's weird because I have computer skills, even though I majored in French and Spanish and women's studies. Don't do that, kids at home. Um, actually do that. <laughs> actually do that. It served me well. Um, <laughs> Do, do do that. But, uh, but I had that this extra, um, I had an extra capacity for, for technology. And so since the early 90s, I've been on the social internet, and my time on the social internet predates, um, it doesn't predate the existence of the World Wide Web, but it predates its wide scale acceptance. So the first time I saw uh, a World Wide Web browser uh, that was a graphical browser, it was um, NCSA Mosaic. And I said, yeah, to, I remember Mosaic. Yeah, remember? <laughs> remember the 80s? Um, so, <laughs> so I was at work. I was working in a computer lab at the University of Wisconsin. And I went in to work one day and all these Macs were like trying to load. They were Mac Quadras for, again, for the older set out there. They were trying to load something and failing. Uh, and I asked my colleague, what is this? Because he had loaded this, 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 you know, what we would call an app now on all these machines. And I was like, what are these machines doing? And he goes, oh, well, that's the World Wide Web. I said, what's the World Wide Web? He said, it's the graphical internet. And I said, dude, that'll never take off. That'll never take <laughs> off. Everyone knows the internet is text-based. There's no, they're there. There's nothing to see, right? Like at this time, we're still downloading pictures in base 64 and like stitching them together. Um, so this was a time that predated uh, the graphical internet. And that's kind of the environment in which I grew up. And then, of course, the commercial internet became a phenomenon in large part because of increased computational power, increased bandwidth, and the graphical aspect, uh, essentially turning the internet from a, you know, this is a bit of a, of a, a, a rose-colored uh, vision towards, uh, towards the past, but from a sort of a, a free form imagined space into a 2D shopping mall, essentially, right? That we were like reproducing catalogs and stuff online, LLB and catalog and stuff like that. Um, and so I saw this like coming of the commercial internet firsthand. I saw it professionally, really changed the way that we were interacting with information, uh, interacting with each other online and so on. And so, 
Um, long story short, I ended up uh, kind of abandoning my professional career around 2006 and went back to school for a master's degree, which I thought would just put me right back out in the workforce and I would be back in IT. Uh, but I decided to go for a PhD to go on for a PhD. And it, it was under, uh, under that aegis that in 2010, I was just finishing up my first year at the University of Illinois. I was down there in the summer teaching and a, a very brief kind of what I would call below the fold story. If we were looking at a, an analog physical paper, um, it came out in the New York times and it was in the text section. It was very brief, uh, relative to other pieces. And it talked about people who were working, uh, in places like rural Iowa. Now, when I was reading this, I was sitting in the middle of a cornfield in uh, rural Illinois, which just happened to have 80,000 people assembled around the university, but was, you know, for all intents and purposes, agricultural breadbasket of America kind of country. And I was reading the story in the times about people who were working in what from the description sounded to me like call centers. Uh, and they were working in these kinds of uh, large, large installations, warehouse environments in places like West Des Moines, Iowa, which was about three hours away from where I was sitting and other places in rural Iowa that had, let's say in the eighties and, and, and uh, earlier than that really been family farm land. But what happened in the eighties uh, under the Reagan administration was decimation of uh, the possibility of, of farming a uh, family farm and it had gone to agribusiness. This was the era of farm aid. So the first farm aid concert actually happened in West Ames, Iowa, where this, um, where this installation was located. And what I read about in the times were that the people who were working in these call centers were not answering phones or taking service calls for like Sears or whatever, Maytag, which is kind of what I would imagine when I think of a call center. But actually what they were doing was reviewing social media content from a variety of platforms, which were fairly new at this point. Uh, also any kind of website, commercial website that might have a possibility of, of user engagement and user upload. So it could be like something like REI that's like, you know, send us a picture of you using your tent out, you know, in Colorado or whatever. And if, as a one, <laughs> one, in, one participant in, in my study who was in management at a digital media company once said to me, if you open a hole on the internet, it gets filled with shit. So, you know, soliciting pictures of, a, of people camping in Colorado yielded, you know, beheading pictures, um, child sexual exploitation material, dick pics, runs the gamut. I mean, yes, right? completely. Yep. Right. And so what these people were doing in this call center were working 975 an hour. They were essentially contractors, third party people working a contract to screen these vol this volume of material that was being uploaded. And it was like this instant crystallization of a, of a realization that I had never had, which was simply that there's no way, there's no way that social media firms would leave their brand identity, their potential uh, relationships with advertisers who are their true clients, um, other kinds of economically, uh, 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 important factors to chance by saying to the whole world, essentially, take your human self-expression, put it in a bucket that we call content, which is a made-up construct that's fucking meaningless. Are, are we, do we have bomb on this show? Yes. So, uh, fucking <laughs> yeah. meaningless, Did you right? Know me? yeah. yeah, I do. Cheers, Kate. Um, so, so that, you know, this, this kind of bucket that's called content 
and upload it. Again, this is like 2010. Um, so this is fairly early days and we're, we're on the ascent for firms, right? And it, it became clear to me that of course this could be calamitous if it weren't managed. But what I quickly understood was that the management of this material, um, which had to be happening, was at odds with kind of the public image that the firms had been cultivating and developing, which said what? Well, in the American context, and it's important to contextualize it in the United States, freedom of speech. So this Kate is, is a lawyer. So I'm just going like to like I'm just yeah. going to pause yeah. for one second because yeah. you guys have both been doing this for so long, but I want to state that like what Sarah's story tells is the story from treating content moderation as a customer service slash then slowly moving it to a trust and safety became the term trust and safety issue to it being what we came to know it as, which is content moderation, which became known as like, all of a sudden we realized that what this was that they were doing was had nothing to do with customer service. This wasn't returning like the wrong size boots to LL Bean. This was about like how we talked online and who was talking and who was able to communicate. And so, um, that's kind of, I love this story because no one, like people don't have this scope and you two have been doing this maybe the longest, I think exclusively of anyone. Yeah. You're absolutely like on top of all of this. When I started in this area, I talked to Sarah and I talked to Jillian. That was like the people that I had to talk to and read because they were the only ones doing it. Everyone else didn't even know this was a thing that existed. Um, and, and Kate, I'll just say, it's not because people were dumb, right? It's not like people were just like foolish or rubes or something. It's because the firms were promulgating a narrative to the general public called come on to our platform and express yourselves. In fact, um, YouTube's slogan for years on again and off again was broadcast yourself. Yes. It doesn't get any more crystal clear than that. The idea, especially for that American audience, but then later on, very powerfully for a global audience was- It was only um, this notion of speaking. No one yeah, was paying speak, attention to emote. the stuff that was coming down. Well, right, because how do you account for an absence? So what I started doing was I started poking around at the University of Illinois and asking you know, the stages, essentially, these amazing professors and all the people who were kind of tapped into, you know, let's say the political economy of the internet. Hey, have you ever heard of this practice? And 201, they said, there was kind of like a one-two answer. The first answer was, huh, I never thought of that. And they paused and it was like their whole world was being reorganized, you know, like you could see the gears turning. What year was this, Sarah? This is 2010. So they would say, huh, I never thought of that. And then they say, don't computers do that? Don't computers yeah. make that? As if, first of all, let's Which just is the same pause. response I got in 2016. Right. Six As if that's somehow, why would that even be preferable? Let's ask ourselves that. So we'll come back to that. But just to check that out, I walked over to um, NCSA, which was located as the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, for those who don't know it. It's located at the University of Illinois. However, it's located in sort of a tonier area of campus. So I walked over there and I went into a, um, a research lab of a guy who was working on computer vision, uh, which is kind wow. of this, the, the field that... Um, uh, uses computation to do recognition uh, in a recognition of, again, like symbols, objects, meaning making processes. But really what it is, is, is fundamentally is a matching process. And I went into this like VR studio that he had. It was all blacked out, you know, cube. 
and I, I kind of posed the problem to him. I said, okay, here's the circumstance. Here's the context. Um, this is the problem space. Social media companies open this giant hole in the internet, tell the whole world to put up what they want. Can computers be put on the case essentially? And he, you know, he was like, oh, you gentle, dumb soul. You know what I mean? He was very like, oh dear. And he said, see this. And he gestured over at an oak table that was in the middle of the room, you know, just a real basic four, four legs kind of rectangular oak table. I said, yes, I do. He said, well, right now what we're working on is making the computers reliably know that the table is a table. Yep. This there is we go. Right. All right. So, so that's we 2010. Have our, we have our first after uh, 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 how many? Let's see. We have 242 dismissed questions, almost all of them from uh, Swastika Guy. Uh, and we have <laughs> one. It's Actual. Mac Viva Glam Swastika Guy, and you can get it anywhere, any Mac store. So, and we have one actual <laughs> question, which is from Zoe. So Zoe, the floor is yours. Also, I should say, hi, Zoe. Hey, guys. Hi, this Zoe. is Zoe Darmé. Long, long listener. Long time listener, first time first caller. First time caller. Everyone knows Zoe. They, both, of these, both of these people know Zoe. I know Zoe. Zoe has worked at Facebook for some time. Zoe, you're no longer at Facebook. Is that correct? I am not at okay. Facebook anymore. I am a concerned citizen calling in about content moderation. I have two questions for you guys. First question, how much do you hate the phrase arbiter of truth? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Jillian so gets that wild. one. <laughs> and question two, do you think health misinformation is substantively different than other misinformation? Thanks, great guys. Quest great questions. Two great both. questions, Zoe. Look Thank forward you. to catching up with you, Zoe. Jillian, <laughs> get us started. How much do you hate? But no, like note the for the formulation. It was not do you hate and how much. <laughs> it was like assuming the answer to the so, do you it, hate. Well, it's a good, yes. good research question because you never want to ask a yes or no question. So <laughs> well formulated. Yeah. All right. So how much do you hate the phrase arbiters of truth, Jillian? So much. Um, I, I'm I'm thinking like, do I hate it more than I hate the idea of a corporation being an arbiter of truth or? Um, no, I absolutely hate the term. I feel like uh, it's so much more complicated than that. And I think that the moment that we're in right now really demonstrates how complicated, right? Because we're dealing with this, I'm trying to avoid the words that we have to use every day, but it's impossible. We're dealing with a pandemic. Um, I think everyone knows that by now. And what I've watched is companies say, okay, yeah, we're going to rely on the, the WHO and the CDC, but I'm in Germany. And that's a complicated thing for me because I'm watching what's happening in the U S and going is I, I'm, I don't, I have not verified everything on the CDC's website, but I have to wonder, like, does that approach make sense? I don't know how much I would trust the CDC. That's yeah. like another thing, which is, but, but to get, so I think that Zoe's questions are yes, interrelated. Sorry, off. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're like, I think that that's totally fine. I, but I do think that Zoe's questions are interrelated, which is that who should, there are, there, the phrase arbiters of truth is so weird and hackneyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, Can we give a little context for that phrase? I don't know where that comes from, the etymology of that at all. Um, but there, I mean, it's- Isn't it something that that uh, that Zuckerberg said he doesn't want Facebook to be the arbiter? But doesn't truth? that seem like a phrase that existed before Zuckerberg? Oh, for sure, yeah. But I think that that's its origin in this conversation. Oh, least. okay. Yeah. But yeah, the, <laughs> uh, but my point is, is kind of like, so here's one of the interesting things, which was that, uh, 
you know, that um, a few people um, I think that you know about both of you guys know about this. We're on this call that Facebook did. I don't know if you guys were on it. I don't think you were. Um, that they did a, like about how they were going to start kind of assessing misinformation in the time of COVID. Um, done, and actually, I think they've done quite a few calls because I've been on one as well. You I'm have, on one okay, on good. Thursday. Yeah. So there's like they've been already. doing these they put calls us in little groups. They yeah, do. exactly. Um, so they did this this call. And I was on it like a week and a half ago or something like that. And like, it was actually quite informative. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't agree with the fact that they're using like the World Health Organization CDC as some type of like neutral arbiter, but this becomes like, just becomes some type of epistemology question as do all of this, do all of the misinformation questions, um, which is like, who are these, who are these fact-checking boards that we want? What, are, what is this, like, what is these things that are, we're supposed to be having like a truth for? There is a, like, historians have written for years, uh, narratives of the civil war that are completely ignorant of like the entire racial complexity of like everything. And also historical fiction. Is yes, all false, and sure, exactly. right? I mean, it, so, it has a whole bunch of true facts that guide the basic outline of the story, and then all the rest of it is made up. And we all think that is completely appropriate mm -hmm. because it's historical fiction. And yet, if you apply any objective standard to it, it's active misinformation. Well, right, but this is like this is the thing that, I, that when we would sit in these oversight board meetings and whatever, we would talk about like, okay, well, let's work through what what, what we would do in re relation to this misinformation. If you get down to a certain level, like it really ends up becoming like, what is a play? Is a play a true representation of a play, which is a fiction, which we understand as a fiction, but is a fiction and not, but it's a true thing of a real thing. That's a fiction. It's just like, it's so, does that make any sense? I'm trying, not trying to be like too garbled. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, I, I want to take Zoe's provocation and kind of loop it back to what I think are some fundamental um, uh, kind of like uh, baseline setting that we could do. Because what I want to say about content moderation is the following. When we hear a discussion about it, for example, in a regulatory context when uh, various representatives of the social media companies, and by the way, Facebook feels very put upon and feels that I pick on them, but I wanna be clear that I'm picking on all of them because they all have- All of the platforms you mean. Yeah, I mean, Facebook just happens to be like the market leader and it's a little bit like the quarterback of the football team crying about something. Like it's a little difficult for me to, um, uh, you know, take take that seriously on some level, which isn't to say that there aren't amazing people who work at Facebook with whom I engage on a regular basis. I just think that they are hamstrung by their executives, full stop. But what I wanted to say was, um, you know, a lot of times when there is a conversation about content moderation, which frankly is now um, a bit of a, a, a of a, of a shorthand for what I would describe as the politics of platforms in a, in a larger way, because it's the operationalization of, of the politics of a platform. Um, what ends up happening is a lot of like normative discussion, like they should or they should not do moderation or they should do it more in this way and less in that way. But, you know, a lot of the discussion is just fundamentally like they should or should not. Here's the, here's the headline, everyone. 
these companies have made decisions about what flows over their branded platform, which otherwise would be an empty vessel without the uh, introduction of user-generated content, other types of content now that they even produce themselves, um, since the beginning. And if you believe for one moment that multi-billion dollar transnational corporations would leave it up to chance as to what flows over their platform, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you, okay? That's just fucking nonsense. Never has there been freedom of speech on these platforms. And the sooner that the public gets their head around that, the sooner we can have a, dis a discussion that makes sense about, okay, given that we know that there are decisions that go on around content, which again, is a shorthand in and of itself for human expression writ large, political speech, cultural material, interpersonal speech, the gamut. Okay, we have a president who issues edicts over Twitter. We ought to be considering that at the highest echelon. Um, when we understand that these companies have never rescinded their control over what content flows, and yet has led the public to believe that they were hands off, now we have a problem. I think we all have to recalibrate and understand what the companies really are doing and what they're willing to do and not do, and then ask the tough questions like Jillian does about the actual policies. But the question of should or should not, folks, that ship has, has sailed so long ago. In fact, it never was on the table. Yep. It, it never was on the good. table. Yep. Yeah, Jillian, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think I just want to go back to Zoe's question about medical misinformation for a minute, because I do think that I don't, I think it's, it's unique. I wouldn't say it's different in how it should be treated. But again, putting aside the fact that, or everything that Sarah just said, putting aside the fact that companies are going to moderate this content regardless, I think that we should be looking at medical misinformation or information even um, through the lens of, and, and I don't say this about many things, but through the lens of harm and public harm, um, because what we're looking Almost at right like now- Almost like a true threat. Exactly. But I think like what I'm worried about with the companies is, especially when they're going, when they're saying, okay, well, you know, we're going to go by this, um, this entity's guidance. Using a real life example right now, I think that there's a big difference between saying everyone should wear a mask or masks don't, you know, masks might not help. To, to like, everyone should go have a party next weekend, right? One of those things is potentially imminent harm. And I worry that the companies get really, and I, I hate to say it, but it's kind of like engineering mode. Like there's this binary answer for everything. And that's really what worries me because that's what we've seen when it comes to nudity, when it comes to LGBTQ content, when it, it comes moves, to I mean, terrorism. I would completely but, agree with but, you, but go ahead, but, Ben. Yeah, I was going to say, but like, like one reason I think the companies are neurotic about nudity is that it's an easy problem. That's right. Right? Like, yep. like people, people feel really strongly about not it. Not that easy. It's not that easy, but it's comparatively easy compared to say, There's a lot of high false, grade stuff that's false, that can come down. False information. Yes, there are edge cases. There's art. There's whatever, but basically, either I've got a shirt on or I. Don't. I'm with I'm with Benjamin. And I, and I, and I, I, I think too, that, except I think we got a question: Is it actually a problem? Should we well, even be considering it something to censor? No, no. So I I I agree with that. I think that's a, a like that's where like the 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 difficulty of the problem and the importance of the problem 
are like you you can fixate on the problem because it's relatively easy to solve and with all due respect to the difficulty of policing breasts and nipples it's easier to solve that problem or at least to address that problem than the difficulty of truth versus falsehood um not not without its uh, but you can judge it based on the content. You're totally right, Ben. You can, you can to a certain extent, and, find elements of the content that you can like objectively state or they're and, not. And similarly, there are problems that are uh, relatively difficult that companies put an immense amount of effort into because they go to uh, their own liability, for example, That's copyrighted right. material. Right. So the, the hard cases, when we talk about content moderation, and these hard problems, we're talking, the, the access that we're talking about is that they're relatively difficult to, uh, to, to police and to make the decisions and relatively unimportant to the company's livelihood. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, in part because of section 230, but we don't want to get into that quite yet. That's like a whole thing. Really so, quickly, so we have to... Do you want to go to Andrew Bridges' question really quick? Yes, because I, I, have the, all, I have the perfect Sarah, trans- I think you might have something that you want to say too. Well, just briefly, I mean, I think, that, so we've got a lot of issues on the table here, but I think, again, to bring it back to the crux of the issue, when we understand content moderation in the commercial context as being a, a, a mechanism of brand management and liability mitigation, we're in a totally different register of discussion that's way closer to the truth than um, arbiters, arbiters of truth, morality police, or any other kind of uh, brush that this has been painted with, oftentimes by the, the company's leadership itself. And what happens at Facebook in particular, but also at other firms and other brands is that you have a CEO level nonsense kind of in the clouds, pie in the sky vision statement about connecting the world. Okay. And then in operations, you have granularity ad absurdum. You have um, what percentage of pixels are nude flesh? What percentage of pixels is gore? Right. How much, you know, how hard is the penis? I mean, like fucking nonsense, like when you say it out loud, because granularity is something, again, that can be binary uh, to, to Jillian's point where you can say, yes, no, does it meet this criterion? Yes, delete, no, keep up. But what's missing is the middle stratum and that's the stratum called politics. Yeah, that's a great, that's a really that's great, a really good point. that is a great so, segue into Andrew's question. So I had the perfect segue into Andrew's question, which is that, some minutes ago, Sarah said that if you believe X, she has a bridge to sell you. And we actually have bridges here, but it's Andrew Bridges with a question. <laughs> that would have been a great segue a few minutes ago. Well it's done, a then. shitty segue now, but right, I'm just marking you. the spot that I had a great segue. Andrew, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you. Can you all hear me okay? Yep. Just fine. Great. Um, so I want to, uh, and those who've heard me speak uh, know that I've been uh, this is an axe I've had to grind for a long time, but I, I'm very concerned about deleterious effects of the vocabulary here. Uh, three words that I don't like to hear in these contexts are content and moderation and consume. Uh, because dude, content, you you uh, you come to a our show, dude, about content moderation. That's why Eric say- Goldman, yeah, Eric <laughs> Goldman has never invited me to participate. 
I, I think there's a good reason. Um, first of all, content is what is in containers. Uh, I'll give you examples of content. Niblets and Cheerios are content. Uh, and they suggest, they suggest that we are talking about um, uh, products, inventory, because they are inventory. Commo commodities. Commodities and inventory from the standpoint of, let's say, movie studios who have DVDs and jewel boxes that they want to push off shelves, um, or companies that are looking at these things as just units uh, of so merchandise. So skip to the, where is the part where this isn't that? Uh, because when I post a post to Facebook, I don't think that I'm distributing content. I think I'm well, saying something. We're I think all I'm using something. Yeah, we're using industry language and we ought to resist that. And I agree because what we're actually talking about is the gamut of human, human self-expression as vast as we might imagine that to be in every kind of... I mean, that's true. Bingo. Okay, whatever. But like, come on, is this like, this is no offense, Andrew. Like, I take your point, but this is like, this is like, well, we used to call them circles and now we call them wheels. Like, I just like, so Michael, I don't understand. It's, it's way okay, more important than that, though, because he's talking about the flattening of human self-expression into a commoditized space that is fully monetized and it's abstracted in some cases. But let's go to the case of YouTube, where um, there are so-called partners who get checks cut to them on the basis of engagement with their material. And so there is actually a, 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 an economic incentive to post bullshit nonsense horrifying stuff because it is again to benjamin's point those edge cases that are provocative that grab eyeballs that get circulated but, but that's let, let's also let andrew talking, finish his question but, yeah but that's but you see even that example just now is going back to a sort of a mercantile or commercial view my point is most of the people i know who use facebook are not commercial operators and they are using facebook to connect with people to wish people well when they have chemo going on to make a political statement and to say to these people oh that's just content feels as though it is robbing their expression of human importance now also when we talk about moderation i mean look all of you and i we've all been moderators at panels and i've never said to any uh anybody on any of my panels i don't like what you're saying shut up that's that's not what a moderator does moderation here is a euphemism let's call a spade a spade it is censorship but kate i'm going to defend th this battle because no i'm like these... I'm, you're, you're bringing me around andrew it's okay, okay. <laughs> and, and in the and the, you're bringing me around last... i'm listening okay i'm listening and the last, <laughs> the, my last point is on consume to consume is to destroy a house gets consumed by fire a, a car consumes gas after both consumptions they're no longer there you could also when say people... that to consume is to enjoy no to enjoy is to enjoy I consumed a steak. And, and what did it turn into? It wasn't steak anymore. I long. consumed this excellent scotch. I don't right. think and that when does. you consume it, it's not that there any longer. I don't think that narrow means a negative. You, and yeah, I consume television uh, for a long time. But, but, yeah, I consume how, a lot of but, television. I can really enjoy it. It's a euphemism for other things. I, okay. yeah. I, mean, I take your point, but I think that this is that is the one thing that I do take 
is like, okay, so the definitional parts of this are actually fascinating. If you do take content, uh, the terms content moderation, and I think that Andrew points out a tremendous point, which is actually really what has a, like a long stand. And if he was still on, we could talk to him about it, but maybe it would be not productive, but, uh, but if you're basically his point, maybe, and I'm, and Andrew, you can write in if I'm wrong, your my his point maybe is that by putting it in terms of content, you make it about consumption and therefore you make it about commercial speech and therefore you minimize the value that it has in a type of First Amendment type of context in which First Amendment speech gets less due or like First Amendment commercial speech gets less due, which is fair. Um, but I don't think that that's actually norm, like at a social normative level, what we're, what's happening? Jillian, go ahead. I can like, you're chomping at the bit. No, no. I mean, I just want to say like, this is a debate that I have frequently with, uh, with my boss and with some other people. And I, I actually fundamentally agree with everything that Andrew said. How do I? I use content and I use it all the time. Obviously I use it as a lazy euphemism that a collective euphemism for, video, text, posts, events. Because honestly, when we're talking about content moderation, we are talking about the moderation of a ver like not, not just the range of human expression, but also a variety of different kinds of content. And so yes. as a lazy catch-all for us, for journalists, I get why we do it. I actually, I think that the moderation point is a stronger one for me because I've been arguing for use of the word censorship for a really long time and yeah. particularly censorship is not always by the state and not always something that we disagree with. I think that there's a lot of censorship that is approved of by various societies. Um, and I dispatched with this in like a footnote in new governors. And I was like, well, when I say moderation, this is what I mean. And I like to specifically define it. Mm -hmm. And I had to basically say exactly that Jillian, I think I even cited you in that footnote, which was basically like, I don't mean censorship. Uh, which is a term that implies the big G government nation state censorship. But like, I think that- Not historically I mean, though. Okay, wait. Historically, it also includes the church. Well, then we have Nate on the line. Wait, 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 wait. Before <laughs> okay, we get sorry. to Nate, um, we're going to get to Nate. But I, you know- I feelings. I, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I have, first of all, I have a story about this that I, uh, Michael Kinsley, when he went out to- uh, left Washington, D.C. and went out to Redmond, Washington to found Slate, uh, which was originally owned by Microsoft. And Mike was, um, tells this story about being in, like, in a cubicle at Microsoft running Slate. And one of his, uh, like, East Coast television friends um, comes out and visits him and sees his cubicle and says, Mike, how can they put you in a cubicle like this? Your talent. And he responds, not out here, out here I'm content. And I actually don't think very much turns, like I accept uh, uh, the point that this is fundamentally, the nomenclature is evocative here. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we used to call people artists. We used to, now we call it content, we call them talent. We call in, in LA, they call it talent. In, in Silicon Valley, they call there's it. There's just uh, different terminology for stuff. But it like the law the has thing. stupid terminology for things that make are completely able to explain in plain English. Yeah. And so I, I just not like, I understand how, uh, 
how Andrew Bridges uh, regards it as demeaning of the substance, but I'm not sure what I like if you call it Cheerios or call it, you know, Frosted Flakes, I'm not sure what actually turns on the terminology. Well, I would just say that I actually do think that there is value to the point. Um, I don't want to get into a semantic debate because it's honest, interesting for the audience, but I mean, I, I wrote a piece about this um, because I do think that uh, when firms render these types of uh, human self-expression acts into a giant bucket called content, what they're actually doing is lowering the stakes. And that really matters. Um, people don't become as invested in understanding the power of the platforms to negotiate um, self-expression, political speech, et cetera, when we talk about content writ large. And so the precision uh, that's lost, I think, has a political implication, but we can move on. I just wanted but to- No, that. but there's like, but there's a relativism here, which is that like to a 17 to a year old girl that cannot answer back to someone who like has been like accusing her or cannot answer, like cannot post something that is about someone in her class that has like said, done or said something against her and she gets her post taken down or she's maybe it's a self-harm issue or there's something or like, or it's a post against self-harm or it makes her look like she's going to self-harm, whatever it is, that there's those moments that get triaged in one way in Facebook and another kind of, another set of moments that get triaged uh, when it's Boris Johnson doing that to use our Boris Johnson yardstick as our, like, as we have been measuring things in terms of what's, what is Boris Johnson in the hospital um, with the show. Um, but my point is, is that that's like a really important thing because I think that that's exactly Sarah's point, which is like when you have certain types of content that become commercial, obviously, or become political, obviously, they have different types of ramifications and in like inherently different types of protections than like the lowest of the low and like the like the everyday person and like the when I say lowest of the low, I mean like kind of like the youngest of the young and like the people who are not the Boris Johnsons and like the everything else, like the, the, all of us. <laughs> like I don't mean low in like a negative way. I just mean low in kind of like a we're like you know we're not like living in Buckingham Palace type of way. All right, Nate, the floor is yours finally. <laughs> okay, um, can you all hear me all right? Mm -hmm. Just fine. Okay, great. So for, for brief um, context, I work in the, uh, speaking generally, of course, the kind of office that receives certain kinds of informational reports, um, primarily related to harassment, sometimes of a sexual nature, civil rights nature. And the issue where we're having in terms of uh, moral hazards is I want people to use the search engine for our website. I want people to look up the office or to file reports or get additional information. But simultaneously, you know, our, we have IT sending out emails like, hey, we're monitoring, you know, and you're, you, we may flag your ID if you log on to our, our website, our infrastructure, and you use these terms. And so I'm in the kind of awkward position of having to tell people, we're not going to investigate you if you're searching for a way to help someone who's been sexually assaulted. We're, we're not going to do that. We want you to actually put sexual assault, what to do, into your search engines so that we can help people more efficiently. And what I'm, I'm running into is this um, kind of ad hoc paranoia where people don't want to actually search the stuff while they're connected to us because they, they're afraid of being flagged, but they have no problem putting information into email with their real name and identity at all. So that's, that's a very rapid unload of context um, thoughts for the panel. 
So hold on, Nate, really quickly. Can you just restate what you, what your, what your thoughts, what your question is? Sure. I guess to put it as, as bluntly as possible, what, what can we do to talk to say the, the administrators may be higher level than by myself to say, we're prioritizing the, the wrong things when we're looking at content moderation. If we're for particular offices need to do particular tasks, why are we emphasizing content moderation over actually telling people, here's how to use our searchable databases to find things. Don't be afraid of looking for things that might be controversial. Um, how, can, how can we balance the, we have to use this screen or the, these, the, the IT can system. Can you tell us anything more about the type of platform you're working for? It's hard. I think everyone's sure. a little bit confused. Sure. So um, basically it's uh, related to, it's, it's, and again, IT issues are not my forefront, but it's um, university online internet infrastructure. So in order to access the, the Wi-Fi, and again, this is more prior to our remote environment sure. but in order to access the the internet you have to log on using your university student employee affiliate credentials okay and so everything is hypothetically monitored because you're logged in i see okay and so you're yeah okay so now sarah go ahead sarah thanks nate thank you so much sarah you're muted um, I think I have like the context for this that I could I can give an example. So I found out that at my particular institution there is a service, um, uh, which it which sits at sort of like uh, the level of of routers. Um, let's say routers that are passing packets through the university's um, uh, con connectivity infrastructure and passing that outside to the internet. Uh, at large. And this particular service uh, does some type of monitoring for potential like Trojan horse files and like, you know, stuff like that stuff that's going through coming in or out of the university that could harm the network and the data environment inside. And when I delved into what this service really was, because, you know, first of all, the first um, like investigative pass was to learn that it was a service and not say a piece of software. I found out that actually what happens is that, uh, for example, emails might get flagged because of the names of attachments and then human beings scan the, uh, the email attachments to decide whether they're legit or not. And this um, service that sits at the periphery of the university's IT infrastructure is going on all the time. And I can guarantee you that I'm one of probably five faculty members at my university that even knows this exists. And I was so overwhelmed when I discovered it because I know what the implications are. I mean, this is content moderation by another name and the academic freedom of the university and the research kind of you know, FERPA and HIPAA issues. I mean, I almost had an aneurysm and I just had to drop it and walk away. But this is the way that like um, content moderation lives outside of the ecosystem of social media and all these strata and regular people do not have the tools to unpack the surveillance uh, ecosystem that they're under. Um, you know, my mom is constantly afraid to give me her credit card number over encrypted chat, which is totally fine, but she might do something else that I would consider completely unsafe or like dangerous and it's almost impossible to you know for folks like that to figure out how to school them up 
And, uh, and I think that is sort of as a stand in for a larger problem across society. I, I often feel that people who are like conspiracy theorists or skeptical actually have a really good intuition. It's just often those, those fears are directed at the wrong spot and where the actual bad stuff is going on, they have no way to perceive of it. Jillian, do you have something you want to add? Um, no, I mean, I really agreed with that last bit, but I, I'm afraid that I, this is a little bit outside of my realm of, uh, thinking. yeah, we can, we can bring yeah. it back. If we want. I mean, I think that we kind of need to wrap up, but like mainly I would love to kind of just hear your thoughts. Um, I think that I'm going to pose pose this is like, I think basically the biggest question that's looming for content moderation that Sarah has written about. And Jillian, you and I have talked about on like, like signal and like, like other things, which is that the problem for content moderation is that like, because content moderation is so much a human problem and a problem done by human labor that they've had, like all of these, like places that like all of these platforms that employ tens of thousands of people have sent them home because they can't work like from home to do this content moderation for privacy reasons. You can't be viewing someone's dick pics like while you're sitting on your couch. Like that's actually like one of the things that nor is- Nor do you want to. <laughs> nor do you want to, exactly. Like then your home becomes like the treacherous, like kind of trigger inducing thing that your workspace is. Um, but like- all of, all of that is true, but like what I think all of us are, and I, and I, and I posed this question in the talk with Facebook, which was just like, you guys are lucking out and getting this huge beta test. Like you're getting this huge beta test in which you can test how good your algorithms are and how good your automation is. And if no one complains that much, maybe all of these people just go away. And the, as Sarah raised the question earlier, why are we trying, why is it okay that we want, why is, was it okay for people to think even that all of these like decisions are made automatically or through a machine or through an algorithm? and the importance of human moderation and the importance of human judgment and all of this. And so I just kind of, I'm just very curious, like I was told when I asked this question by Facebook that they have no plans to, to ever like maintain this uh, movement away from human content moderation, that as soon as they can hire people back, they will do that. And that, I was like, I, I was kind of like, okay, you're saying this on a line with all of us. And I think that they really believe that I hope, but like, I have no idea like what's going to happen in the next two months. And so I would guess that's what I want to say. Like, do you have any predictions? What is your worst case and best case? I mean, I kind of can imagine, but what are, what for each of you, like in just like 10 sentences, what are your worst case and best case scenarios? What'll happen out of all this? Do you want to go Sarah? And then Jillian? Yes. Well, you also, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, <laughs> go ahead Jillian. Go ahead. You, go you also going to give me one minute to tell the, the golden girls Facebook story. Oh God. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it's, I'll keep it short. Um, in 1991, an artist named John Curran did a, I guess, speculative um, nude or topless painting of uh, B. Arthur, the actress. And Wait, this I, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did not, she did not sit for the painting. He just what painted her breasts as he, 
No, she didn't sit for it. Just to be I'm clear. Joking. I'm joking, Jillian. She's talking about me, Jillian. <laughs> that was an obvious joke. <laughs> I was trying to add on to the joke. It's late here, you know? Okay. I just took four days off, so I'm a little... Um, but yeah, no, so I'm, so anyway, uh, she did not sit for the painting. It is a lovely painting of what her breasts might look like. Uh, and that was the first time I ever got a temporary suspension from Facebook. Oh, really? Because you posted that, that. Yeah. you posted that. That's amazing. Um, that's incredible. <laughs> um, okay. And so how many times, wait, you... you said the first time. Yeah. How the many other subsequent? <laughs> What's that? The other times have been for different content different expression um but two other times i see i'm happy to tell you what they are but i i don't know that we have time <laughs> um sarah do you want to go ahead and talk about what your hopes and dreams are for in 10 sentences or ish yeah sure well i did just um last week uh publish an, an, an opinion piece with slate called the great ai beta test um with with no apologies to tom wolf and ken kesey but um uh, I think, you know, on the one hand, people who follow my work imagine me to be someone who would champion the arrival of AI tools because it might deliver human beings from the precarious and deleterious uh, role of viewing content and then taking the psychological damage on that they do in that role. But um, as someone who cares about also you know, the well-being of humanity, the ability to speak back to power, the ability to have democratic intervention. I'm very concerned about AI tools becoming any type of default for the simple reason that there's no way to do um, a successful audit. AI tools don't uh, call a journalist and rat out their, their firm. They don't quit and then call into the program. They don't do that. And so we lose a mechanism of human intervention that allows for human agency. Uh, so I learned through a uh, means that is not important right now that Facebook, like you said, Kate, uh, says they don't have any plans to completely move to autom automation. I'll tell, I'll simply say that I believe that's because automation is not uh, able to do the work of humans. And so we're stuck, we're going to be stuck with status quo beyond this for some time, which is a human uh, machine hybrid. Um, okay, yeah, so I mean, I can't, I can't uh, agree more. I think that, you know, the great paradox of the, this issue of content moderation, now I got to put it in quotes, I can't say it anymore. Um, but is the fact that you need humans, and yet there's a human cost to it. Um, there's right. really no way out of that. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I secretly hope for, and I'm saying just in case any employees are listening, is that these companies do, you know, after all this, do a proper audit, I guess, is the word of their rules. Um, I think that at this point, from what I've heard and what I've found in my research uh, for this book is that at this point, like you've got different- What's the name of the it. book? I'm not saying yet, I'm not ready. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, um, we can't wait. Thank you. Um, but yeah, but you've got all these different slide decks all over the world that you've got different um, training manuals that, that moderators are looking at in different places. And this is not necessarily by design, but just because it's so inherently sloppy. Um, and I think at this point, the rules have gotten sloppy too, if they sort of added layers and layers onto them. So I'd love to see, you know, a full-scale audit of all of those practices and maybe some re-engineering uh, that fixes some of the things that are just so, some of the things that are glaringly ridiculous. And I think I'm looking at Twitter when I say that less than I am Facebook. No, I love that. Um, ben, anything you want to add? 
I sorry. No, I feel I, like you've like you've gotten excluded from the Golden Girls here by the Golden you Girls know, here. I, I like. I am okay with that, actually. I think you know. Uh, uh, I am content to be uh, uh, the cameraman for the Golden Girls. It has been a really great episode. Or the moderator, you might say. Yes, a little bit. You did pick out like some of the, you did pick out some of the um, Q&A. So do you want to, wait, well, I have to pick the song for today, don't I? Yeah, well, we'll get to that last, of course, because the song plays us out. So thank you to Jillian and Sarah for joining us. Um, uh, You know, we will be back tomorrow. Who is our guest tomorrow, Sarah? Uh, Kate. Is it Sorry. Maggie or is it? No, Maggie's Thursday. Is it Hannah? No, Hannah's Friday. We're really well organized. We, we, we may have a gap tomorrow. Wait, Hannah's um, Friday? Yeah, and 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 Maggie's not like Maggie's just the end of Thursday because she's gonna we're gonna edit her letter, and okay. I mean she may be like the last fifteen minutes. But uh, so we may need a guest for we tomorrow. We might need a guest for tomorrow. We'll figure so it out. So this is your chance, anonymous attendee swastika guy. Um, <laughs> send, send me an email, benjamin.wittis at lawfareblog. I do feel like we had the whole week planned out. I'll have to go back and listen to our like Saturday podcast. And, and, Saturday and cast send remember us a said. note. This is good for taking I love this. Why Look, you, you want to be on why you want to be on the show and like i look you're an uncivilized bastard and sending swastikas to people and you know and talking about their appearance it's just like really rude but you clearly <laughs> want i guarantee we're all hotter than you swastika guys so yeah. just, you know <laughs> but you seem to be offended that i called you swastika guy and you see, like you wouldn't do this if you didn't have something to say so if you want to make a case that we should have you on to talk about why you Zoom bomb and what you're trying to get out of it, uh, I'm potentially open to that cool. conversation. But you have to be a civilized person. We're not like giving you a platform to shout, you know, racial epithets. But I'm happy to talk to you Wednesday or Thursday about like what's on your mind and why you're behaving. We in really might have promised fashion. that to somebody, but okay, <laughs> well, I figure yeah, no, out. Like if, look, I'm not promising you a particular <laughs> <date>. swastika <laughs> guy. You know I'm what I mean? I'm not gonna like subvert invited guest that I forgot no. about. Was no, daddy no, means for a swastika guy? guy. <laughs> if we forgot, look, swastika guy, we're happy to have you on. I'm not promising you a particular date in case our bookers um, uh, <laughs> screwed up and we've forgotten one of our guests oh man but remember sure. until tomorrow at five when you might see a mystery guest because we've actually not booked anybody or you might see swastika guy or you might see the forgotten guest uh remember in lieu of fun there is always us now kate what's playing us out this is awesome <laughs> this is maybe the best uh, this is maybe the best song that I've ever uh, gotten out of bed and put on my record player, which I left in Brooklyn and I don't have anymore. Um, it is Dolly Parton's Nine to Five, and it describes my life on Zoom right now. So I'm I show that in my class. I'm showing that in my class. <laughs> so I'm going to play. I'm going to. I'm going to close that. Or even because we start at five. But no, so it's before this, I was, this is what I was doing. So 
Thank you guys both for coming. This was amazing. This was a great conversation. Thank Have you, an guys. awesome rest of your Tuesday. This was a blast. Thank Bye, you. Bye guys. Take care guys. <laughs>